This episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story is intended for adult audiences. It may contain graphic descriptions and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Scientology really is a journey into the mind of L. Ron Hubbard, and the further you get into it, the more like L. Ron Hubbard you become. How many religions created by a science fiction writer are you familiar with? A religion that makes over $200 million a year in profit, with over 50,000 prisoners, <clears throat> excuse me, employees, no, sorry, 50,000 followers. L. Ron Hubbard was famously known for his interesting relationships with the truth. Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Good evening, Five years ago, an organization that calls itself Scientology was incorporated for the first time in Canada. The letterhead refers to Scientology as a church. The founder has called it the world's largest mental health organization. The Minister of Health for the United Kingdom said in Parliament in 1968, and I quote, the government are satisfied, having reviewed all the available evidence, that Scientology is socially harmful. It alienates members of families from each other and attributes squalid and disgraceful motives to all who oppose it. Its authoritarian principles and practice are a potential menace to the personality and well-being of those so deluded as to become its followers. Above all, its methods can be a serious danger to the health of those who submit to them. So you, you used to be a Scientologist, is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, no longer, but um, I did uh, had a, uh, a brief period in the Scientology world. I assume a lot of what we're going to talk about today will be... You'll already know it all. I'm not going to, I'm not sure how much of it I'll be able to agree with or comment on, but um, I guess let's see how we go. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. The, f yeah. the first part I want to tell you now, I, I don't know how I feel about this because this is taken from Scientology.org.au. So it... Oh, the official site. It's taken from the official Australian site. So it makes me a little nervous that, that there's an official chapter all the way down here. Yep. So let, let me read you this first little part about L. Ron Hubbard. So... L. Ron Hubbard was an author, philosopher, humanitarian, and founder of the Scientology religion. He was born on the 13th of March in 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska, and he passed away January 24, 1986. His long and adventurous road to discovery began at an early age under the tutelage of his mother, a thoroughly educated woman. He was reading well beyond his years, Shakespeare, Greek philosophy, and an array of later classics. Yet his early years were far from bookish, and when his family moved to Helena, Montana, he was soon breaking broncos with the best of the local wranglers. As an inquisitive youth in what was still a rough and tumble American West, he was also soon befriending indigenous Blackfoot Indians, learning tribal lore and legend from local medicine men, and so achieving that very rare status of blood brother. By the age of 13, he had further distinguished himself as the nation's youngest Eagle Scout and represented America scouting to the US President Kelvin Coolidge. 
Oh, good old cow. What most distinguished the young L. Ron Hubbard was an insatiable curiosity coupled with an innate desire to better the human condition. That's, that's pretty reasonable. That, that's a pretty nice little biography. An innate desire to better the human condition. Although it sounds on the surface pretty, pretty benign, but there's going to be some stuff behind that that's what he's really after. Well... <clears throat> That's very interesting. But let's correct an impression first. You said you were in trouble. Let's get my relationship to this completely straight. So on. I am the writer of the textbooks of Scientology. About two and a half years ago or so, I even ceased to be a director of organizations. The government, in the first place, I am not in trouble with the British government, not even faintly, and if I went in today, or tomorrow, through immigration, they would tip their hats and say, how are you, Mr. Hubbard, as they have been doing for years. I think the perfect place to start this story is by explaining to you, you might already know this, but how the world began according to Scientologists and thus according to L. Ron Hubbard. So the incredible story of how the world began that Scientologists believe involves a galactic overlord. I'm sorry, I can't... <laughs> <laughs> sorry let, let me do that again <laughs> it's, it's just hard, it's hard I reckon we keep I reckon we keep this in <laughs> the incredible story of how the world began that science that Scientologists believe involves a galactic overlord by the name of Xenu a volcano and souls that attach themselves to newborn babies 75 million years ago there was a galactic federation of planets ruled by Lord Xenu. Xenu thought his planets were overpopulated, so he gathered aliens from all different planets and had them frozen. Those frozen bodies were packed into galactic cruisers, which dumped the frozen bodies into the volcanoes of Hawaii. Unfortunately, the aliens all died, but their souls floated into the sky. So his plan didn't quite work. No, because Xenu had expected this to happen. Oh, of course. And he was ready and waiting, not wanting the souls to make their way back to the original planets. Xenu had the souls gathered in the sky by his giant soul-catching devices. <laughs> <laughs> he then... <laughs> he then took them to a big brainwashing facility that he had built on Earth... <laughs> <laughs> and spent days brainwashing the souls so that they would believe their new false reality. Okay, did he build the brainwashing facility? What was it? Granite? Was it a like a, a glass building? Did it have levels? Was it a campus type facility? Uh, there's photos um, on the what? internet. Okay, oh, and he <laughs> built it. Yeah, yeah. he built. Yeah, 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 So these souls, now brainwashed, were then released and left to roam across Earth, completely confused, obviously. And at the dawn of man, the souls attached themselves to all of mankind, causing such things as fear, confusion, anxiety, and depression. Obviously, all these problems still plague humanity today. So, Xenu is before the dawn of man. So, what was he? He was an alien? He was a, another being? He was a... Another life form, yeah? He was a, an alien overlord. 
yeah he was he was out there in another galaxy and you know it's just it's your general it's your basic overpopulation problem what do we do with all of these people aliens beings we've got too many mouths to feed so he decided to freeze them and send them send them to earth yeah gather as much that he could and um and bring them to earth send them down to the ground and let them become someone else's problem essentially so that gotcha all joking aside that is the genuine (laughs) teachings of how earth or or how it all kind of began so we don't actually okay. know what mankind could have been like because man the the mankind way back when earth started kicking off has been infected by all these confused brainwashed souls of also the scientologists would have you believe yeah but it's true it's all real mm. oh it's all yeah 100% so you've obviously converted as well yeah so this is the genuine teaching if you're a scientologist this is non-debatable this is your belief this is your belief this is how it happened this is how we all came Mm. to be here yep yep okay so who was the man that had all the answers al ron hubbard or more affectionately referred to by his followers as lrh let me give you a little bit of backstory so after dropping out of george washington university in 1932 another dropout at the age of 22 the nebraska native started his career as a writer specifically writing for pulp fiction which when research was it was called pulp fiction because it was something to do with the type of paper that it was written on right and it was mainly science fiction magazines that he was writing for he was being paid a penny a word so you can imagine to make any type of actual money you would have to write a ton novels a ton of words in order to actually earn a livable wage so he is the current guinness world record holder of the most number of books published he's published over a thousand books jesus and he also holds guinness world record for the most translated author the most audio books published by an author and the most translated author of the same book which was the way to happiness a lot of the themes from his early writings would would often reappear in his writings for scientology so at this point i'm feeling pretty comfortable this all seems to be a you know on the level this all seems to be pretty pretty legitimate at this point oh, i'm ready to i'm ready to re-sign up again you know i'm i'm thinking about going back <laughs> so there was a there was there was the term included in a lot of his writings and it would reappear and become a cornerstone of scientology and that was the term becoming clear and that was a, right. that's a level in the church that when you reach the level clear you've been completely free of all traumas and any unwanted emotions so before he started scientology he was an officer in the navy his military service is a major part of his persona within the church if you've ever seen any official you know scientology photographs you'll see that they they wear a lot of similar like navy type uniforms yep and they also keep a lot of the the titles that come with being in the navy yep so when he was in the navy he claims that he received quite a number of medals and he had quite a major involvement in a lot of the prolific battles during world war ii uh-huh. however majority of his military records show that most of his service actually took place in the continental us right and he was very famously known for creating 
a lot of fiction around his time at sea. So he kept, mm-hmm. as, as you can imagine as a writer, he kept um, quite a number of diaries on his time whilst he was at sea. And he would write in those diaries that he was responsible for sinking two Japanese submarines. But in fact, just off the coast of Oregon, he opened fire on what would turn out to be just a giant log. And he dropped most of his charges underwater on what turned out to be rocks. Jeez. So when he accidentally shelled a Mexican island, he was then relieved of his command. Yeah, that'd do it. So... A lot of the things that he claimed versus a lot of the things that actually happened, there wasn't a lot of truth marrying up between the two. Right. After the war, he moved to Los Angeles, where he befriended a rocket engineer by the name of Jack Parsons, and Jack encouraged him to join into the Californian branch of the Black Magic Cult, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ordo Templi Orientis. Yep. So, for a little bit of context, because I think he took from here and implemented this into Scientology, membership of the OTO is based upon a system of initiation ceremonies or degrees which use ritual drama to establish fraternal bonds between members as well as impart spiritual and philosophical teachings. During his time with Jack in the OTO, Their ultimate aim was to summon a goddess who could give birth to the Antichrist. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't quite work, so Hubbard ultimately tricked Parsons into giving him $20,000 and then ran off with his girlfriend. Of course, you know, that's, that's a good plan B. Yeah. Her name was Sarah Northrup. He was, at the time, 13 years older than her. I think he was... So how old is he? Mid-30s at this point, so she was early 20s. Yep. Sarah Northrup would later write, because she also kept a number of diaries that now are often referred to, Hubbard wooed her by saying that he was a war hero and that he was he was the captain of a ship that was downed in the Pacific. He also reportedly told her that he spent weeks on a raft and had been blinded by the sun and had his back <laughs> broken during his time at war. In reality, and this is according to the official Navy records, whilst he was in the Navy... He only suffered mild arthritis and a small case of conjunctivitis. (laughs) Yeah, so again, pretty common common thread here between what he says, what actually happened. Is there much truth in there? That's not up to me to decide. Well, he's a Pulp Fiction writer after all. Right. So the couple's relationship was fairly rocky, and during a fight, Hubbard told Sarah Northrup that he was going to commit suicide if she didn't marry him. In 1946, they did marry, and a few years later, they had a daughter together. In 1950, the family moved to New Jersey, where Hubbard began writing the book, Dianetics. Now, this was the absolute foundation upon which Scientology would ultimately be built on. The principle, or the basic principle of Dianetics, is that the brain records every experience and event in a person's life, good or bad, Those bad experiences are what the book refers to as engrams, which could hurt a person if they're triggered later in life. By carrying out auditing, being asked many very personal questions by a trained auditor, the person can be cleared of these engrams leading to being clear, which is a perfectly functioning mind. See, straight away, I'm hearing this story about a guy that used to write fiction 
and now he's just he's just making up stuff by the sounds of things. Mm. Um, who are the tra- who who are the trained auditors? How do you become a trained auditor? Um, it just sounds like you know. He, I mean, for all, for all we know, he could be just another George Lucas, just writing us, you know, about a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But people obviously have uh, followed his ramblings. Later on in his life, um, he does get into spending a lot of time behind the camera directing his Scientology movies. So, yeah, they probably are very, mm. very similar, and they just chose different different mm. outlets to to bring their writings to the world. Yep, I guess so. It's funny that you do say that, though, because according to Sarah Northrup's recollections, Hubbard said to her, the only way to make any real money was to have a religion. That's essentially (laughs) what he was trying to do with Dianetics, get a religion where he could have an income and the government would not be able to take away from him in the form of taxes. Only in America. Mm. So, again, take from that what you will. Mm-hmm. Dianetics unfortunately did become a cultural phenomenon and Hubbard began touring the country telling auditoriums full of people that what was described in the book was essentially a cure for the psychological ills of mankind. Mind-blowing to me at this mm-hmm. point. Yep. So Sarah would further explain that these people were ba- they were paying him $500 a piece in the 1950s for training in Dianetics she felt at that point that he was essentially stealing from people. But of course stood behind him as a dutiful wife. Well, for so long. Hmm. She also went on to write that he began to believe he really was the saviour and a hero and that he really was a god figure. Oh, God. It wasn't obviously long before she threatened to leave him if he didn't get some type of psychiatric help. Hmm. He responded very maturely by fleeing to Cuba with the couple's young daughter, where Hubbard found that he could not take care of her, so he gave her to a mentally challenged mother and daughter who reportedly kept their child in some kind of cage. Now, this is starting to get serious. Yep. She then later recalled that he would call her and tell her that he had killed their daughter. He said that he had cut her into little pieces and dropped those pieces into a river and that it was all her fault. Then he would call her back and say that she was still alive and apparently this just went on and on and on and on. So hang on a minute. So L. Ron Hubbard is the founder of Scientology. Yes. To this point, he sounds like a fucking psychopath. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Again, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that because I don't want this to be the last podcast we ever do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, no. Just based on like, if just based on the the story we've heard to this point, uh, he sounds like a fucking psychopath. It doesn't get any better, and this is okay, all, all right. this is all freely available mm-hmm. in multiple forms, be it books, mm-hmm. documentaries. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's all available for anyone out there to look up. Finally, in 1951, Hubbard agreed to divorce Sarah and she was granted full custody of their daughter. That would have been a relief for her. It was, but when she was finally able to leave him, he cleaned out all of their bank accounts, leaving her with zero. You're right, it doesn't get any better. Yep. So now, a year later, by 1952, the popularity of Dianetics had completely fizzled out and Hubbard had become desperate for money again. So he began integrating the ideas from the Dianetics book into it was a beliefs and practices of what he called 
Scientology. And for a fee, you could hmm. become a Scientologist and you could begin to raise up the levels of what he called the bridge of total freedom. Oh, my God. That sounds pretty good to me at this point. Uh, the, the bridge of total freedom. Mm. Sign me up. Again, so he started, he started on his big tour again and... The first few readings of Dianetics or the, the new form of Scientology, he was he was literally pitching his idea to a room full of 10, 20, 30 people. To really know life, you've got to be part of life. You must get down and look. You must get into the, the nooks and crannies of existence. Or the, you have to rub elbows with all kinds and types of men before you can finally establish what he is. And you in fact did this? Yes, I've slept with bandits in Mongolia and I've uh, uh, hunted uh, with uh, pygmies in the Philippines. As a matter of fact, I have studied 21 uh, different primitive races, uh, including the white race. <laughs> and uh, my conclusions were that uh, man he was a spiritual being that was pulled down to the material, the fleshly interests, to an interplay in life that was, in fact, too great for him to confront. And I concluded finally that he needed a hand. So at this point, I think he realized he needed to start to legitimize Scientology a little bit more and the ability to read somebody. So he created a device which was called the E-meter, and it's still it's still a massive component of Scientology today. It was allegedly able to determine the enlightenment level of any individual. If the E-meter received the right readings, the individuals were able to proceed to the next level of Scientology. If not, they usually would have to pay for more teachings and practice and more time on the E-meter. And I think today, I can't tell you what it cost back in the, the 50s and the 60s, but I think today, to be a Scientologist who goes in for these auditing sessions with the e-meter, that'll cost you about $800 an hour. So the way it was put together, it's essentially one third of a lie detector. So it does, it, it, you, if you're the, the one being audited, you would sit there and you would hold these two metal cans in your hand basically, and, and through a very faint electromagnetic pulse, they relay the mass of the user's mind back to the e-meter to be interpreted by the auditor and the again the auditor is a scientology practitioner he listens he computes and he interprets the e-meter what if he's having an off day that would not be the case in scientology no you can't there's no such thing as because he'd be totally quote-unquote clear Right, so if you're the auditor, you've already gone through a lot of this and you've been able to rid yourself of the evil engrams. Yeah. Mm, that's right. So going back to Dianetics briefly, the, the concept of it was that you basically have two sides to your brain. There's an analytical side, which is a, it's a perfect computer. It remembers everything completely flawless. It never makes a mistake. And then the other side is the reactive side where all your neuroses and anxieties and fears are stored and they all make up the evil engrams which are essentially like memories in your mind 
man has an automobile accident, he has a picture of an automobile accident, he has all the sensations of having been hurt in the automobile accident, it takes him a long time to recover because he's still wearing the automobile accident. If you said, hey, why don't you take this automobile accident and throw it away, why all of a sudden he recovers from the automobile accident, naturally, because the thing is keeping it impressed upon him and his body is his mind. With Scientology, members would spend hours and hours and hours in these auditing sessions going over every detail of their lives in excruciating detail. The goal is to rid themselves of these evil engrams attached to every mm. negative experience, chasing the ultimate path of becoming clear. It's very, very, very hard to find any type of real footage of these auditing sessions but from believe it or not people actually have left Scientology and they tell the story that the auditors there was no filter there was no there was no line that couldn't be crossed they wanted to get every piece of information they could possibly get about a person and they kept them with they took copious notes in these auditing sessions essentially writing your life story and I suppose if you're in that position where you're being audited you don't have a filter on your side either because you think i've got to give i've got to rid myself of everything here i've got to tell these people everything mm -hmm. so approximately 15 years after the inception of scientology the irs began investigating l ron hubbard for his tax evasion which took him out to the high seas and it was there out on his ships that he would go on to create what was called then the Sea Organization, more commonly known because it's now still a very crucial part of Scientology, the Sea Org. And this is, mm. a, this is a chapter of Scientology that is reserved for the most serious members. Admission to this group, this I love this part, admission to this group required you to sign a billion-year-long contract between you and Scientology. I remember seeing a story on... Uh, one of the ABC shows years ago about this girl who got caught up in the Sea Org. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's a good place to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. What are you actually doing on this ship now? I am studying ancient civilizations, trying to find what happened to them, finding out why they went into a decline, why they died. So he was, he was obviously keenly motivated to be out on sea to avoid any trouble from the IRS, but <laughs> yeah. what he had his followers believe was that he had previously lived in the Mediterranean area as an Italian prince and an Arabian prince, and in these, mm. pre in these previous lives he had buried huge amounts of treasure out in and around the Mediterranean coastlines, and he had planned to go out and find it. Something that he never did, obviously. While at sea, he began to create punishments that, again, this is still another extremely important part of being a Scientologist. They're called ethics. The early forms of punishments for auditors that made mistakes during their sessions were to be thrown overboard. This is very definitely off the record and don't use it. But uh, Scientology organizations were probably much more precisely conducted when I was a director of them. I hadn't been a director of them sometimes. So maybe there are abuses. I wouldn't tell anybody else that. Do you ever think that you might be quite mad? Oh, yeah. The one man in the world who never believes he's mad is a madman. After 10 years or so at sea, he was no longer welcome to dock at most ports in the Mediterranean. So in the mid-70s in Florida, he snuck ashore to avoid obviously the IRS that was still after him. He had multiple subpoenas against him and he spent the remainder of his life from that point 
in hiding. He was still very prolific in the Scientology community and that's when he went on to do a lot of directing for Scientology movies and videos and recruitment and all that type of gear but he was no longer a public director or the public face of Scientology mm-hmm. and then it was probably 10 years or so later on the 24th of January in 86 that he passed away. Thank you. In 1980, LRH moved off the lines so that he could continue his writings and researches without any distractions. He has now moved on to his next OT, level of OT research. This level is beyond anything any one of us ever imagined. This level is in fact done in an exterior state, meaning that it is done completely exterior from the body. At this level of OT, the body is nothing more than an impediment and encumbrance to any further gain as an OT. Thus, Thus, at 2,000 hours Friday, the 24th of January, A.D. 36, L. Ron Hubbard discarded the body he had used in this lifetime for 74 years, 10 months, and 11 days. Although you may feel grief, understand that he did not and does not now. So today, the Church of Scientology is worth over two billion dollars and a huge reason for that is a man by the name of David Miscavige. He was at the time of L. Ron Hubbard's passing a young Scientologist who quickly rose to the top job. Under Miscavige's rule the church has grown exponentially. Scientology has become recognized as a tax-exempt religion in the US that happened in 1993 and he has managed to expand the church almost all around the world and they've amassed huge amounts of real estate holdings across the globe literally worth hundreds of millions of dollars at this point in the early and late 90s. Now, we've all heard the stories of Scientologists trying to leave and their cult-like behavior and their general disdain for any non-believers. And I could literally spend hours more telling you about the comings and goings of Scientology and Scientologists. But I think now's a really good time to give you just a basic rundown of what it looks like today. Firstly, to reach the top level of the bridge to freedom and become what the Scientologists call an OT, which is an operating Thetan. Obviously, a Thetan is a spiritual being. There's multiple levels of OT where a member becomes more and more clear. So you start at the bottom of the ladder and you spend years and years in the auditing sessions, give up your entire life to the Church of Scientology, slowly climb your way up the ladder, the bridge of freedom. Keep in mind to become an OT, an operating Thetan. Over the course of the bridge, it'll set you back somewhere in the neighborhood of around $300,000. Now, while you're climbing the ladder to become clear, the church will write down literally every single detail of every single auditing session. So in theory, by the time you hit OT, the church will most likely have a room full of notes on you, which is the perfect tool for the church to use if you ever do decide that you no longer want to be clear and you want to leave. They have literally every single one of your thoughts, every single one of your deepest, darkest secrets to use against you at any point. I should mention here though, 
that most Scientologists don't just decide to leave. They don't just wake up one day and say, all right, I'm not going to go into the church anymore. They usually begin to show some type of bad ethics towards the church, and those type of actions will land you in the RPF, which is the Rehabilitation Project Force. That's essentially a concentration camp where naughty members will be sent to relearn the rules and ways of Scientology. In the RPF, you can expect to spend 20-odd hours a day doing highly labor-intensive menial work. You'll eat food scraps that were left over from other people's meals. And the small amount of time, it's usually about three hours you get to sleep, you'll do that on the roof. So if at any point you decide that you no longer want to enjoy any type of freedom and you decide that you no longer want to keep any of your money and you're not feeling as clear as you would like to be, Scientology might be worth a go. Yeah, um, I don't need my money. I think my money is, is kind of weighing me down a bit. Like it's just too much to worry about. So yeah and mm. also if you just so you have absolutely zero doubt about joining the church of scientology i want you to be clear that everything is <laughs> above board here even above with, board <laughs> even with the number of active members steadily declining since 2010 the church continues to buy real estate all over the world and currently has close to three billion dollars worth of real estate under management that definitely makes me feel a lot better Oh, it just definitely means that the right people are getting rewarded with the right things in life, you know. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's so many problems with the world, but the Scientologists still are able to, you know, increase their real estate portfolio. 100%. And if you never hear from us again, just like <laughs> Shelley Miscavige, David Miscavige's wife, who hasn't been seen in public for the last 13 years, we are not missing. I repeat, we are not missing and everything is fine. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's story. If you've enjoyed what you're hearing and you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. Whilst we're forever grateful for all the listeners that have taken the time to subscribe, rate and review the podcast so far, if you're listening to this right now and you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is very much valued. Thank you again. Until next week. And now, folks, it's time to say thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Hope we bring the family hope you've enjoyed the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you here. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night now.